On the prequel to the 28th episode, we're learning about laying thematic groundwork and previewing Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Hello and welcome back to the prequel to the 28th episode of This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. We are on the second installation of Harry Potter, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, uh, rousing episode, very successful, one of our most downloaded in the first few days of all time, as I sort of expected mm-hmm. it would be. But yes, it's doing very well, which is exciting. Hopefully we have some new listeners maybe that have found it for the first time. If uh, if so, this is our prequel episodes, which we do. They're usually a little bit shorter. We usually talk about some, but they're also maybe more informative in some ways. Not more informative, but we have a our learning things with this film is lit segment where we talk about literary uh, techniques and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and sometimes film techniques yep, sometimes based film on techniques. and especially if we can find a way to where they correlate. Uh, where one 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 episode we talked about epistolary novels mm-hmm. and what that is, and then how that is portrayed in film with the example being the Martian. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can go back and listen to that prequel episode if you haven't heard it. But so we like to do things like that in the prequel episodes. That's what these are. And then we preview, which is kind of just fun facts uh, and interesting tidbits about the upcoming movie slash book. So that's what these are. Um, Like I said, they're usually a little bit shorter. So let's get into our first segment. Learning things with this film is lit laying thematic groundwork. No matter what anybody tells you, Words and ideas can change the world. Okay, so that's what I called it. Mm -hmm. I called it laying thematic groundwork. We're not going to talk about, like, how to do that or anything like that. This isn't, this isn't, uh, yeah, we're not teaching you how to do these things. It's just sort of a cursory, introductory to some concepts type of thing. Right, and we're going to talk a little bit specifically about what Rowling does mm-hmm. in this book. Yeah. So on our last episode, the main episode about Sorcerer's Stone, we talked a little bit about Rowling's impressive planning ahead skills. And this is kind of like an offshoot yes. of that. Yeah. We mentioned how she, she uh, previews, or not previews, um, teases plot major plot points mm-hmm. that are come way later and not even in the book way later in the series in the first book that the first time you're reading it you would never even catch little things like seemed like Snape could read minds yeah. uh, mentions of minor characters aunt marge is mentioned um other things like that little things that seem like just throw away one off you know not important lines but actually come back in big ways later in the series right she's very very good at laying groundwork yes i almost want to call them like reverse easter eggs yes they kind of are because yeah, you, uh, yeah or you might even just be easter eggs i mean i think an easter egg is usually like something that you would recognize when you see it yes right this is more like when you go back after yes. the fact, you're like, oh, hey. Repeat reading Easter yeah. eggs. So anyway, uh, I wanted to bring Repeaster this up. Easter eggs. Easter eggs. I don't like oh that at God. all. <laughs> nope. Continue. Don't like that at all. <laughs> you're <Sorry>. in timeout. <laughs> so in book two, 
is where we see Rowling really start to lay the groundwork for some of Harry Potter series major themes. And I want to offer a little bit of a disclaimer here. I'm not saying that we don't see these themes in book one. We absolutely do. Um, it's just that book two is where they kind of start to be thrown into sharper relief. Um, both her as the writer and us as the readers are able to focus on those themes a little bit more, in part because we're not quite as focused on world building as we are in the first book. Yeah. So we're able to put a little bit more focus on those thematic elements. Mm-hmm. Should I explain what a theme is? Yeah, probably a little bit. Just so, especially because even without, a lot of people probably know what themes are, but sometimes mm-hmm. thematic isn't as mm-hmm. necessarily, doesn't follow as clearly for everybody. I know I had trouble initially, or I didn't realize initially what thematic meant. And then I was like, oh, theme. Okay, theme, I get it. Right. But like, yeah. So real quick. So a theme is an overarching idea or message that you find um, throughout a piece of work, whether that's a book or a movie or a series of books or movies, what have you. Um, So it could be an idea, something like friendship can be a Mm -hmm. theme, or it can be a more clear message like racism is bad can also be a theme uh in in terms of uh, a very prominent theme in lord of the rings uh environmentalism versus sort of um not environmentalism but uh agrarian society versus yes. uh industrialized society yes kind of Tolkien clashing. was not yeah. one for the industrialism no and so obviously the orcs represent industrialization whereas the hobbits sort of represent mm-hmm. uh, agrarian mm-hmm. more peaceful green society if you will so i want to talk about um there are a lot of themes in harry potter we're not going to talk about all of them that could be that could be like a several episode series in and of itself and they don't all pop up in this one i mean you get more coming later with later books um and yeah so yeah we're going to focus on mainly big ones from this book but also play out through over the course throughout the course of the series right so these are four bigger themes that Rowling really focuses on in this book mm-hmm. so one of the big things is um an examination of what makes a person who they are which we see throughout the story um, maintaining that Harry's choices are what makes him who he is, yes. um, more so than any aspect of his birth or his heritage. Yes. We have the the Dumbledore quote. It's Dumbledore. That it is, yeah. It, I mean, right? Dumbledore yeah. says it about as plainly as yes. you can say and it. It's, it is one of my favorite quotes from yeah. Harry Potter, like bar none. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, is, it is our choices that make us who we truly are, yeah. far more than our abilities. Mm-hmm. So we have that pretty much spelled out for us. Which, if you're a determinist like me, doesn't make any sense, but <laughs> it's a whole other thing for another time. Yeah. We'll assume free will exists in the Harry Potter universe. <laughs> for We're the not sake getting of, into it. I know. Just for the sake of that quote, we'll assume free will exists in the Harry Potter universe. Yeah. Sorry. Continue. But we also see this theme um, exemplified through characters who attempt to conceal their true identities. Mm-hmm. Most obviously, we have Professor Lockhart. Yes. Who pretends to be someone who is brave and knowledgeable and pretty fantastic when actually what he is is a very charming liar. Yes. 
We also have the mystery of the identity of the heir of Slytherin, mm-hmm. a um, much talked about and theorized about mis- mysterious identity. You mean within throughout the book? The book. Yes, yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah, we don't find out who the heir of Slytherin is until the very end. Final couple chapters, yeah. yeah. So our second big theme, then, and this is one that a lot of people are going to recognize. It's something that appears throughout the series that a lot of people talk about. And book two is where we really start to get our racism metaphor. Yeah. So we have... The treatment of non-human characters is one way that we see this, Mm -hmm. Um, mostly shown through the introduction of house elves. Um, We learn what they are, and we learn that wizards view them as lesser than. They're essentially slaves. Yeah. Uh, Um, Sometimes by choice, you know. It gets a little stickier. I I say by choice. (laughs) I mean, you can quibble about what that even means in in the context of house elves. But I mean, yeah, some of like the like technically the Hogwarts ones are, I think, implied by somewhat by choice. Maybe not. I don't even. Well, I think it it gets a little stickier in like book four, I think. Yeah. Where we we get into the whole subplot with um, other house elves. With Hermione and the house elf defense league. Right. Whatever it's called. But for, for. For book two, we meet Dobby. Dobby is our introduction to house elves, Mm -hmm. and we see the horrific abuse that he endures at the hands of his quote-unquote family. Very clearly an unwilling um, servitude that he is in. Yes. And I, I think it's important, too, moving forward with that particular metaphor that Rowling chooses to introduce that concept to us through a house elf who very much does not want yeah. to be bound to a wizard family. Yeah. Um, a little more uh, comical example of this same um, concept where we see the, this racism theme is through the denoming of the Weasley's garden. Mm-hmm. It's kind of played for laughs. It's kind of played out like it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. But when you look at that scene and you really think about it, these are living sentient beings and they're just picking them up and flinging them through the air yes. out of the garden. Yes. I was reminded, uh, well, I mean, we'll talk about more, I guess, in the main episode, but I was reminded so much of the Wee Free Men. <laughs> because they're like, yeah. you're off, you're off. <laughs> and there's something about them, maybe. Yeah, reminded me of that. It's a Terry Pratchett yes, novel. Yes, that's one of my other favorite series, The mm-hmm. Tiffany Aching Adventures by yeah. Terry Pratchett. Anyway, um, so we have the treatment of non-human characters, mm-hmm. and we also start to see the racism metaphor through the treatment of non-magical characters with the introduction of the term mudblood yeah. as a slur for a muggle-born witch or wizard. Which I would I would argue, as per our last episode, that Muggle in itself is already on shaky ground. But I would not disagree <laughs> with you. Yeah. But at least within the universe of the story, Mudblood is definitely yes. regarded it's as, 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 as more a, of a slur. Yeah. Okay, third theme. Mm-hmm. We're getting into some uh, more interesting stuff here, I think. Um, stuff that we see come back maybe around book five. Um, we have criticism yeah. of institutional authority, mm-hmm. as seen through, again, Lockhart. Um, he is a teacher, someone that we are taught to respect, right? But he's portrayed as incompetent and self-serving. 
right? Yeah. Not worthy of our respect. Yeah. Even though we're told, oh, he's a teacher, you have to respect him. Okay. Yeah. So Rowling is kind of undermining that institutional idea of a teacher always being someone you have to respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ministry of Magic continues to be presented as ineffectual and more concerned with like bureaucratic minute than any kind of actual real problem. Yeah. And again, that's something else that escalates throughout the series. Yeah, it gets way worse. Yes. As the series goes on. Um, but we're really, we're laying the groundwork for it here because nobody is ever particularly complimentary of the Ministry of Magic. You know, like everybody's always kind of like, eh. Oh, yeah. Ministry. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, nobody really, yeah, likes them or cares about them. Even people that work for them are like, you know, yeah. like Arthur Weasley. Yeah. Like, eh. yeah. <laughs> um, the last example of this criticism of institutional authority that I want to bring up, um, I think is kind of interesting. It's not something that I noticed when I was younger. I mean, I didn't notice a lot of this when I was younger, but, you know, I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, So at the beginning of the book, Dumbledore says that if Harry and Ron break any more school rules, he's going to expel them. Yeah. Right? That's the the law that he lays down. Then at the end of the book, McGonagall literally says, like, you probably broke about a hundred school rules Mm -hmm. to go and do this thing that you did, but Dumbledore doesn't expel them. Right? He walks back on that promise, um, which... Within the world of the story, technically, it undermines his own authority. Technically. Right? Um, but it also kind of symbolically undermines the authority of the educational institution itself. Right? The message kind of becomes, well, the school's rules don't really mean anything. Yeah. I I, I would see it more from the angle of that con- context is important. In I regards don't, to I don't rules. disagree with you, but I still think it's a good example of this thematic yeah. idea of the criticism yeah. of institutions. Yeah, yeah. Be, and, and that institute or the criticism that makes a lot of sense there is that sometimes institutions do not uh, take into account the context of a situation when enforcing rules. And so, th- so it is a criticism, or not? It, the fact that they don't enforce the the blanket rule of you know you broke the rules, you're going to get expelled, um, sheds light on that. Maybe at least in my opinion, I think that's the proper response: is that the context is what matters. Because in the beginning, they broke a rule, but it was for no real purpose. Because they, I mean, the reason he wasn't going to expel them at the beginning is because they. They couldn't get through the thing. They couldn't get through the barrier to fly from nine and three quarters. So they take the car and fly it all the way to Hogwarts. Whereas if, mm-hmm. and he explains very clearly, if you had thought about it for like 10 seconds, you could have just, you know, waited and got an out. Like, you, it's not like you weren't going to get to Hogwarts <laughs> at right. some point if you didn't, you know, uh, if you didn't immediately take a car and fly there. You, you could have, you know. So it was a a poor decision to break the rules in that instance, whereas at the end, it was a good decision to break the rules. And so I think it's kind of brings that into the Mm -hmm. equation. So our fourth and final theme that I want to bring up is something that is very important to me, especially right about now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um. It's warning against passive acceptance of information. 
especially from sources whose motives and reliability cannot be checked. So the really obvious example of this is Tom Riddle's diary. Mm-hmm. Um, both Ginny and Harry um, accept information from that artifact without much critical thought at yeah. all. Yeah, they just assume it's Yeah, they, they just assume and, it's legit. Yeah. Um, a more lighthearted example is Lockhart's books, which have a pretty clear agenda when you stop to think about it. The agenda is to make him seem amazing. Yeah. Um, but in reality, they are part plagiarism and part fabrication. Yeah. Right? They're not real. I was going to mention earlier that baked into the criticism of it's not a major recurring theme, but speaking of Lockhart, there's definitely a criticism of celebrity. Yeah. In this particular book. Again, it's not, doesn't really come back from my memory very much throughout the rest of the books mm-hmm. that I can remember. Um, but there's definitely, yeah, with Lockhart, I mean, it's, um, he's very clearly a, uh, you know, his celebrity is the most important thing to him and mm-hmm. being famous and being liked and, and, and being wealthy is the thing are the things that are most important to him and it's very much a right I, and I think we can tie that back into the idea of um, examining what makes you who you are yeah right to him that's what makes him who he is his fame his yeah. notoriety being liked being loved yeah yeah you're right I think yeah. that is where they but it's all from. a sham mm-hmm. so all right well that was a fun uh, trip down the Learning things. Lane. <laughs> uh, talking about laying thematic groundwork, whereas we talked a little bit in the last episode about it laying uh, plot groundwork. Mm-hmm. Those would be, t- t- yeah, the difference there, obviously, being the plot story elements that pay off the themes, themes that progress and pay off over the course of the books. So cool. That was fun. Let's move along to our fun facts about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. One year ago, he learned the truth. You're a wizard, Harry. And his first year at Hogwarts school became legend. And so, for Harry Potter and his friends, another year begins. Lucky bird's a menace. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, released in July 1998 in the UK and June 1999 in the US. I had forgotten that they used to come out at different times. Yeah, apparently the UK yeah. got them before. Once they got too big, they, yeah, well, they couldn't oh, yeah. get away with doing that They could, absolutely could not once the series got big enough. Because I went to the, I remember going to the Deathly Hallows Midnight, mm-hmm. you know, release at Barnes & Noble, mm-hmm. and it was everywhere in the world got it at the same, well... I guess I don't remember what, but I'm sure everybody in the world got it within eight hours of each yeah. other, probably yeah. slightly different time zone, you know, but within 12 hours or something, they probably, everybody had them. And especially with the way that the internet was ramping up. Yeah. I mean, that, that was time. right, at, right. Well, it was 2005, six in when the last one came out roughly. So yeah, the internet yeah. was definitely a big thing at mm-hmm. that point. Message boards and you know, Reddit was, you know, all kinds of stuff. So. So Rowling apparently struggled to finish The Chamber of Secrets because she was afraid it wouldn't live up to the expectations raised by book one, which feels totally understandable. Yeah. Uh, she actually delivered the manuscript to her publisher on schedule, but then took it back for another six weeks of revision. <laughs> 
Eh, never mind. Mm, I'm do that again. You know what? I feel that. Yeah. I feel it. You'll like this, I think. Early drafts of the book featured nearly headless Nick singing a self-composed song that explained his condition and the circumstances of his death. But this was cut because the book's editor did not care for the song. That's that, That's an editor I can get behind. <laughs> That song out of the book. Uh, it can be found as an extra on her official website. So if you're interested in the nearly headless Nick song, you can go find it. You know what I? You know when I will say this in, as a on songs and books. I believe it's there's a, the um like Kindle or whatever Nook versions of Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings. I believe, and I might be making this up because I just wish it was a thing, but I'm pretty sure this is <laughs> this is real that. If you do the Kindle, like the ebook version yeah, of Lord yeah, of the yeah. Rings, when you get to songs, you can just hit a play button, and they've like, I don't know if I don't know who did it or what, but they've like uh, somebody Maybe who's recorded one of the movie ver- versions. Well, but nah, but the, most of the songs aren't in the movies from like. Well, what, what about the? Oh, I guess I'm thinking of the Hobbit, the old animated Hobbit. Had yeah, songs yeah. Um, I don't know, but I. I I don't think I'm making this up that there are like audio files of the songs being sung. That's pretty sweet. That that I'm on board with that. If I can just (laughs) hit it, listen to it for 30 seconds and then move along. Cool. I'm down. I just don't want to read it. Um, First edition printings of the Chamber of Secrets had several errors in them, which were fixed in subsequent reprints. Um, I've got two examples here, so I think we should look for these. As we're continuing to read to try to figure yeah, out if we've I'm not got to this point in the book yet. if we've got early editions or not. Um, one of the mistakes is that Dumbledore initially says that Voldemort was the last remaining ancestor of Salazar Slytherin yeah, instead backwards. of his descendant. Yeah, totally backwards. Uh, I don't know. We're going to some time travel and the cursed child. He might be his <laughs> ancestor. She might have been laying the groundwork for cursed child oh, way ahead of time. I blacked that book out of my memory, so I don't... But I remember there was some weird time travel in it. I didn't read it on oh, your recommendation. God, don't. So bad. It's anyway, so bad. Sorry. Maybe we can talk about that uh, when we're done with the whole series yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, another thing that was incorrect in first edition printings was uh, one of Lockhart's books is sometimes titled Weekends with Werewolves and sometimes Wanderings with Werewolves. Oh, like throughout the book it changes. Yeah, it changes okay. titles. Um, I liked, I like. I think it's Wanderings with Werewolves might be what they ended that up with. That sounds familiar. more familiar yeah. to me. But I like Weekends with Werewolves because it made me think of, uh, did you ever read the Bailey School Kids Mm-mm. books? Mm-mm. Like, or at least it doesn't sound familiar. Um vampires don't drink lemonade or mm. stuff like that. Well, what it reminds what weekends of werewolves reminds me of is the um uh treehouse something. There was a Oh, the magic tree. The magic treehouse where yeah, they traveled through is. time and it was yeah, like it was always more. a literary it was always a literized mm-hmm. and it was Yeah, like, that is more reminiscent yeah. of that format, you're right. Camping with cannibals. <laughs> that wasn't one of them, but it was stuff like that. I love those books. Like Night of the Ninja was one of them that I, I remember. I only read a couple of those. Oh, I love those. That was one of my favorite book series when I was a little kid, just because it was like it was like Doctor Who kind of yeah. in retrospect, but like just two little yeah. kids in a magic in a TARDIS treehouse, like reading books, right? I think like, so. They yeah. Opened a book and then went to the location yeah, of whatever it was. I think so. I can't remember exactly, but uh, yeah. 
in retrospect, it is. I didn't think about this. I've, I came to my love of Doctor Who way later in life. <laughs> now, in retrospect, I remember I loved that book series. And it's basically their treehouse was a TARDIS. And they were, basically. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we should we should be on the lookout for those errors. We'll see what edition yeah, okay. we have. We'll, check, we'll keep an eye out. <laughs> um, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets garnered near universal acclaim when it came out. Critics and audiences both really liked it, with the biggest complaints being that some critics considered the final battle to be a little too scary for young kids. Um, I saw somebody, I, I didn't write it down because I couldn't find like where this person said it. It was just like the name of a random reviewer. Right. Um, like said that it was on par with Stephen King. And I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I don't think that's right. Sure. Sure. I don't recall it being <laughs> that scary, but all right. And then, of course, uh, religious people were still complaining about witchcraft as that, they did. That never ended. Yeah, that, no, that that's still going on. Yeah. Um, interestingly, though, after all seven books had come out, some critics backtracked on their initial praise of the Chamber of Secrets and uh, said it was the weakest in the series, um, citing its plot as near identical to the first book, which... Not yeah, wrong. I mean, especially... Wrong. Yeah, especially after you've read the... Re- I can see going back and going... Because I think in retrospect, I think it's probably I think the, the first The first two books, much like the first two movies, are very similar. Yeah, they're very similar. And the second one's probably the weakest. I think it is probably the one I read the most when I was a kid yeah. because it... When it came out the earliest, and then there was more time in between the mm-hmm. later ones. So I, as I kept rereading them, I probably read two more than any of them, one and two more than yeah. any of them. Yeah. But, um, yeah. In retrospect, looking back, it probably is one of the weaker one of the weaker ones, mm-hmm. maybe. But it's still, yeah. Um, another thing that they point to in that argument is um, Fox's appearance at the end as a an instance of Deus Ex Machina, which I don't disagree with. Yeah. Not necessarily, but most people often you misuse dancing smokin' because they don't know what it means. And they, but I, I'd have to think on it and as uh, as I'm rereading it and see if I think it fits. But we'll see. Yeah. Um, Chamber of Secrets won several awards, including the 1998 Carnegie Award and the British Book Awards Children's Book of the Year making Rowling the first author to win that particular award two years in a row. It also received the first ever children's book award from the Scottish Arts Council. So I I like to think that they read this and made an award just for it. (laughs) (laughs) And my final fun fact is something that has come up a lot in the years since these books have been out. Um, This is the book that reveals that Harry Potter takes place in the 90s. Oh, yeah. As you can add nearly Headless Nick's 500th death day of 1492 to come up with the quote-unquote present date of 1992. There you go. Set in the 90s, which makes sense. Although we don't see much of the outside world, but... Yeah. There is an instance where one of the girls is wearing an ornamental butterfly in her hair. (laughs) So there you go. To me, that says nineties. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, the film. 
The education in the magical arts continues. Pixies. Laugh if you will, Mr. Finnegan. See what you make of them. No! Old rivalries grow stronger. Slytherin's got a new seeker. Malfoy. You nearly get me, Potter! Something in the school's dark past will be awakened. The Chamber of Secrets has indeed been opened. Came out in 2002, a year later. Uh, this is the closest gap between, other than 7, Part 1 and 2, which are yeah. also a year apart, I yeah. think, because they were filmed at the same time. Mm-hmm. It was released in two parts, uh, but these ones were filmed. So filming for this film, uh, for Chamber of Secrets, started three days after the premiere of Sorcerer's Stone. Oof. So they are turned around real quick. <laughs> uh, it's Chris Columbus's second and last Harry Potter directorial effort. Uh, we went on to different directors. Well, three and four had different directors, and then five, six, and seven all had David Yates. Mm. Uh, I looked it up. Four was different, and now I can't remember his name, but it wasn't David Yates. And then Alfonso Cuaron famously did three. So. Right. Somebody else did four. Somebody kind of strange who doesn't really fit. Although David Yates at the time, I don't think necessarily would have fit in the universe. But it all worked out. Uh, Frank Oz was asked to direct it, apparently. Really? So maybe the idea wasn't for Columbus to direct the first two. It sounds like they asked Frank Oz and he was like, no. Which seems strange, (laughs) but seems like it kind of be right up his alley. Uh, But uh, yeah, he, he declined, according to him in an interview. I don't know if it's ever been confirmed outside of that, but uh, so in this film we get, or in book and film we get uh, the introduction of Parseltongue, this is where Harry yes. realizes he can talk to snakes. Well, so I guess technically it's introduced in one, but we don't where we don't know what it what's is. Or, well, yeah, there's no, but uh, he we start to realize what it is in this one, um, and so it has to be portrayed in the film. So they hired a uh, the a University of Cambridge linguistics professor uh, named Francis Noland, hmm. who actually constructed the language. And I found a really interesting uh, a blog called, and I want to credit it because uh, I came across it, the All Things Linguistic blog, allthingslinguistic.com. Hmm. Um, they also have a podcast if you're into linguistics. I, I can't remember. Uh, linguist, I can't remember what it's called. But if you go to that website, it has a link to their, their podcast on there. So, um, But so this person went to a speech by Francis Nolan, mm-hmm. and he was talking about how he created the uh, parcel tongue for the movie. And I thought this was really interesting. So the phonology, he said, uh, it has no rounded vowels or labial mm-hmm. consonants. And some of these things you might have to look up to know what they are. I don't, I kind of know what vaguely what they are. But the reason it doesn't have any rounded vowels or labial consonants is because snakes don't have lips or, don't, or their lips aren't very oh. flexible. Right. So he based so, his so inspiration. Make, f- like a snake can't make like an ooh sound. Yeah, an ooh sound. Um, interesting. Uh, it's got pharyngeal consonants, pharyngeal consonants, mm-hmm. and the reason for that is because some snakes like to constrict things. Oh, so pharyngeal <laughs> consonants are are ones where you constrict your throat to uh-huh. say them. I can't think. I'm trying to think of an example. G- maybe a yeah, g- okay. like a. Uh, if know. you look up pharyngeal consonants, you'll see what that is. Um, and then the last uh, little tidbit was it's got a large number of fricatives. Mm-hmm. Well, because they exhibit a length contrast. And the reason is because snakes are long. (laughs) (laughs) That might be my favorite reasons 
for making up a language ever. Yeah. Like my favorite language rules yeah. ever. But you know, it's funny is that it, when you hear them speak it in the movie, it sounds, and they do it in a way, they, they put an effect on it as well. Yeah. But it's lots of, s- and like long, like hissy right. kind of sounds, which makes sense. Yeah. That's that's interesting. I didn't realize that they had actually put effort into constructing an actual language. I didn't either. For that, because they honestly speak so little parcel yeah. tongue in yeah. the movies. I, I just assumed that they were like, okay, make hissing sounds. Yeah. And because that's true, I forgot a lot of the times we hear Harry or we hear people speaking English with mm-hmm. a weird accent sometimes. Yeah. He also does like the yeah at the end or whatever when he like tells it to open, but... Yeah, yeah. You yeah. was a little surprised that they wouldn't just come up with a couple words, like you would mm-hmm. think. And now again, he probably didn't construct a full language. He probably right, just kind of came right. up with. They were like, "Hey, let's get a linguistics professor to come up with twelve words that we need, or whatever, um, in a way that he thinks a snake would talk." So <laughs> I just thought it was interesting. Uh, this movie started using handheld camera for a lot of, and I hadn't, no- I hadn't thought about this or noticed this. I think I noticed it more in later films. But uh, in the first one, they didn't use a handheld like at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But in this one, they start using handheld. And that's supposed to having it on a tripod or on a jib or on a dolly or something. So it just adds when you shoot, obviously, you know, like when you shoot home videos and when a hand, Mm -hmm. how a handheld camera looks, there's a slight shake to it. There's movement to it. There's a, Mm -hmm. it's a kinetic feel to it that sort of adds, uh, it gives it a kinetic feel and makes it look less cinematic. In the mm-hmm. sense that it, it 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 looks more, it's the reason why like found footage videos, movies are almost always shot handheld, or not always shot handheld because they were shot handheld because it is found footage, but it, it makes it uh, feel a little more real, mm-hmm. like you're there as opposed to like you're watching a movie necessarily. Interesting. Uh, like like a good example. Uh, it's the reason like all of um, Parks and Rec in the Office. Now that's a a very specific example of handheld where it's mm-hmm. it's a documentary style handheld where you're seeing their their zooms and all this stuff like that um and and then not to mention you're in the the inter- ignoring the interview part just when you're watching action play out and it's very that's handheld is because it, they want it to feel like you're watching something real happening yeah. as opposed to watching a film right um, as opposed to like like a three camera setup and like a sit and a three camera setup is yeah that's then yeah those are not normally handheld so right. that's true but three cameras is a whole nother bag of worms that makes it even <laughs> feel more I, I'm not a fan of three camera setup I know you're not uh, but I thought it would general. be uh, something like a good contrast yeah yeah three uh, yeah in three camera setups they're almost always on a a, a big tripod mm-hmm. of some sort and and it feels Dolly like you're system. watching something that's on a soundstage. Yeah. Well, that, and that's too because to, you are shooting right, them on but a as a, as opposed to like being in yeah. the room with somebody. But, yeah, and you can make it feel like you're in the room without shooting handheld, and make it feel like real sets without shooting handheld. That's very doable. But handheld, just I guess the best way I should have stopped at the very beginning when I said it adds a kinetic <laughs> feel to it, and it makes things feel a little more like Breaking Bad is almost entirely shot handheld. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just adds sort of a tension to everything because okay. the camera's always moving. Okay. So uh, apparently Daniel Radcliffe had Radcliffe had to shave his leg for the the final scene where he pulls up his pants and shows that he doesn't have a sock on. What? I apparently he had hairy legs already at twelve. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. They said it. That's I found this on IMDb. So they made him shave his leg. I get. That's what it says for oh the Dobby God. scene. That's. Huh. I'll have to have you clarify what this is. Okay. The opal necklace, which plays an impor- important role in the Half-Blood Prince, 
can briefly be glimpsed inside a display case in Borgen and Burke's in Nocturne Alley. The opal necklace. It just said that was all it was described um, as. It's not talking about the locket, are they? No, that I think is the... There's a scene... Although I thought that happened in Order of the Phoenix, but maybe I'm. It could be. This is an IMDb trivia thing. It could be a um, mistake. But so, it's so. in one of those two where uh, one of the like more secondary or tertiary characters. Oh yes, is, like cursed and yes. she touches it. I don't remember which one. I don't okay. remember who it uh, was. Angelina J- Johnson or one of those yeah. or Kate, Katie. Oh, it was. It was Katie Bell. Katie Bell. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I don't, I don't recall which book that is, but or I guess it probably no, no, is the no, Half Blood no, Prince. It would have been Half Blood Prince. Yes, that was, it's the one with yeah. uh, what's his name, um, Malfoy. Well, <laughs> Malfoy's in all of them. Uh, Slughorn. His, yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. So yeah, it is six. It's the one that get the curse necklace that makes Katie Bell almost die. Right. Because they're trying to kill. They're trying to kill. Yeah. Spoilers. Spoilers. Ah, so interesting. So look out for that. It's apparently there. Same one. And that makes sense. Yeah. Interesting that they would know that this far ahead to have that. Or maybe, maybe again, this is a case of they didn't know that, but they just wanted a cool old necklace. And then they're like, wait a second. We had that cool old necklace from two <laughs> laying around. That would be cool if we made that the one. That but she- we also know that Rowling occasionally it's told true. them things yeah. she that was, would be important later. She was heavily involved in yeah. the production. So it could be. Could be. It's just to me that seems like a very specific detail for her even to have. Right. Like yeah. that's not like a big character moment. That's sort of a minor plot point from. But again, she she that good. She yeah. I wouldn't be she surprised. She connects the dots like that. Yep. Uh, although it's based on the second shortest book, which is the first one, is the shortest. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the longest film. Is it? Apparently, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which is based on the longest book, is the second shortest film. Huh. Uh. It's interesting because, you know, it's funny is that these first two, I, I said they're like all the same length. Mm-hmm. I looked, they're all within, you know, two. And now it says it's the longest film. It's probably like five to ten minutes longer than some of the later right. ones. Like yeah. they're all within, they're all like 220 to 240. Like mm-hmm. they're all within that ballpark. But it is what you notice when you watch these first two and have, and now rereading them. They don't leave much out. Right. There's very little cut mm-hmm. from these first two books slash movies because... In terms of, like, big things, because there's a lot less to include. Because yeah. the books are shorter and the movies are still the same length. So, 14 Ford Anglias were destroyed to create the scene where Harry and Ron crash into the Whomping Willow. Oh, and they gosh. used... It is the same car that is mentioned in the book uh-huh. uh, that Arthur Weasley bewitched to make it fly. But they destroyed 14 of them for the scene where they crash into the Whomping Willow, which I thought was wild. It's a lot of cars. How did they find that many of the same car? That's like an older car, isn't it? Is it is an older car, yeah. I, I, I probably just have them sitting around over there. Yeah. I mean, it's not that old of a car. I think it's like, like the, from the 80s, maybe. Oh, okay. I, I was think. thinking it was a little older than that. Maybe 70s, but it's not like a crazy old okay. car. Um, there are two instances in this movie where you can see copies of the Harry Potter novels in the movie, supposedly. I've never noticed this. Huh. Something but here's where they are if you're rewatching and you haven't watched it yet. When Hagrid is escorting uh, Harry out of Nocturne Alley, you can see him apparently it's somewhere, maybe in okay. the background on like a and shop like an, window, or something. window or something. Uh, and then again, when Lockhart turns to show his profile to the photographer when he's in the bookshop, apparently there's a uh, hardcovers of Harry Potter on the shelf hmm. near him. We'll have to watch for yeah, that because I've never noticed that. Yeah, This is fun. Hugh Grant was originally cast as Gilderoy Lockhart. 
but had to withdraw at the last hmm. moment for scheduling conflicts. That would have been interesting. Yeah, he, he would have worked. He right would have been look. fine. Yeah, the right look, and he can yeah. be kind of pompous and smarmy. Yeah, smarmy British guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Brownow's great, but oh, yeah, Kenneth Brownow kills it. Yeah, he's perfect. But yeah, Hugh Grant, I think, would have been fine too. And finally, Eddie Redmayne ultimately, eventually, cast as Newt Scamander mm-hmm. in the Fantastic Beasts films, auditioned for the role of Tom Riddle. Really? Yep. Didn't get it. Got it, lost it out to some other guy. Went, and to, it, went to that handsome guy. Yeah, who was 27, I read hmm. at the time. There's two characters in this that are, are played by much older people, <laughs> even though they are kids. One is him. Uh, Tom Riddle's played like a 27-year-old. Mm-hmm. Well, the older Tom Riddle. Right. Because we see little kid, or kid versions of him. And... Moaning Myrtle, played by like a 36-year-old. I think I did know that. <laughs> the yeah. oldest. The oldest Hogwarts student portrayed by... Or, yeah, <laughs> the oldest actor to portray a Hogwarts student uh, was her. The, mm. the character that plays... Or the actress that plays Moaning Myrtle, who's also in an episode of Doctor Who. Although most of the people in this show have been in... A, or in these movies have been in an episode of Doctor Who at some yeah. point. So. That's all I got. I and mean, there's a bunch more, but mm-hmm. I was going for hours. And I, those were the most interesting things I found that I thought would be fun to look out for when you're rewatching the film because that's it next week we're talking about harry potter and the chamber of secrets until that time comes if you could do us a big favor like subscribe no you don't like subscribe rate and review us on itunes or stitcher or wherever else you download our podcast you can also rate and review us on facebook you can go to our facebook page our twitter our goodreads our instagram we have all of those katie posts pictures and fun memes and whatnot uh, she handles all that. I don't. Occasionally, I'll be like, "Hey, you should post a picture of that." But I let her do the rest of that. She's pretty good at it. Uh, but yeah, you can check us out on all social media. Just search "This Film Is Lit." I think that's it. I think that's it. So until next time, keep reading books, keep watching movies, and keep being awesome.